Sinister Myth, How Stories We Tell Perpetuate Violence. This podcast challenges cultural mythologies about sexuality in the West, because so often they encourage, perpetuate, or foster violences against women and minorities. It is supported by an Ohio State Affordable Learning Exchange grant and is created by Zoe Brigley-Thompson and Brendan Walsh. So today I'm here with uh, Jonathan Brandman. Um, my name is Brendan Walsh, and um, yeah, we're here to discuss sex education. So hey everyone, my name is John. I'm a PhD candidate in women's gender and sexuality studies here at OSU. And even though my dissertation is about masculinity and race in the media, something I do uh, alongside that in the program is coordinate our feminist sexual health pleasure and safety presentation, which started as a grassroots kind of thing that another graduate student, McRory Dean, and I started a couple years ago and has grown uh, into a program that serves about a thousand students per year and has a team of six presenters. So we're really proud of it and what it does for students here. Awesome. Thank you. Um, So moving on. What do you think is problematic about current sex education problems uh, as it stands for elementary kids through university levels and how does your program kind of fill in that that lack of education? There are two main types of sex education in the US and they both have some big problems. Mm -hmm. So one common type is abstinence only education which teaches students that the only way to protect their health or quote their morality is to never have sex and these programs not only avoid mentioning other options like contraception or condoms but sometimes even lie and tell students that these things don't work in an effort to discourage them from using these methods and of course the problem there is that kids have sex anyway but without knowing how to protect themselves or even believing there's no way to protect themselves and then having um, unwanted pregnancies or STIs The other type of sex education in the U.S. is called comprehensive sex education. But even a lot of, quote, CSE, comprehensive sex education, is really not that comprehensive. It's still often coming from the perspective that sex is bad, that the goal of the education is to prevent kids from having sex, um, and it still usually does not address lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, intersex, or asexual experience at all. So even if you're lucky enough as a kid to learn about condoms, you're still only learning about them in a heterosexual situation. And these lessons are often so focused on the risks and the dangers of sex that they don't help students to um, apply the knowledge in real life when they're not thinking about danger, they're thinking about how good it feels. So Uh, When McRory, Dean, and I started this program, we wanted to offer a lesson that in like one hour delivers everything. All the information about contraception and all the information about pleasure and consent and how to speak with your partners. This presentation does not come from the assumption that it's bad if people have sex. We come from the assumption that our students are independent decision makers and we just want them to have the information so that they can choose what they want to do um, for their own pleasure and well-being and something we emphasize in the presentation is that students or people of all ages often choose to have sex or not to have sex not based on what they actually want but based on social pressures like the idea that you have to be a man and sleep around or the idea that you're like quote dirty or a slut if you're a woman who sleeps around and what we want students to understand is that 
these stigmas exist and they will have to navigate these stigmas, but these stigmas are not legitimate. And um, we hope that by giving information and destigmatizing gender and sexuality, we can really improve students' well-being. Uh, and another one of our goals is to help students understand the practical obstacles to health. Um, so, for example, even if you were lucky enough to have a CSE lesson that told you about condoms, they probably didn't tell you, well, if you're a woman by yourself going to the pharmacy for condoms, the pharmacist might like give you a nasty look or, or say something insulting to you. So we're very direct with students and we say, when you go to buy condoms, when you go to buy, buy plan B, you know, this is what a pharmacist might say to you. And if you expect it, it may throw you off less. Or we also address um, not only the existence of LGBT people, but also the special obstacles that LGBT, LGBT people face in sexual health. For example, it's very common for lesbians to be told by doctors or nurses that they're, quote, not at risk for STIs because of the false assumption that only sex with a penis is, quote, real sex that could transmit STIs. So again, our goal here is to convey information in a non-stigmatizing way and to help students recognize and navigate the obstacles to their well-being so they can apply this information. Phenomenal. Great. Um, so you mentioned a couple times shame as the basis for a lot of these programs. In your personal opinion, why, why do you think shame is the basis for this? And how do you think that affects the sexualities of young people involved in these programs and experiencing this education? There are two important sources for the emphasis on shame in American sex education. One of them, of course, is religion. A lot of ideas about sex in our culture come from religion, uh, primarily Christianity, but of course there are many other religions in the world and in the US that have many stigmatizing ideas about sex. Although there are also lots of very cool, more recent interpretations of Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, that are uh, much more affirmative of diverse gender and of sexuality. But, um, Without a doubt, abstinence-only sexual education is often explicitly religious in tone. Um, I've had students tell me about parents or pastors telling them they were going to go to hell if they had sex or go to hell if they were gay, um, or just say, like, it's a sin. And so religion is certainly one source of the shame. Another issue that may be less, um, less obvious for people in the present is that the origin of sex education programs in this country was very related to white supremacist anxieties about race and nationalism and class. So um, the earliest sex education programs in the early 1900s were very focused on um, making sure that only white, straight, middle to upper class, usually Christian people who were married were reproducing and there was this fear that they wouldn't reproduce because of incoming immigrants or um, you know the migration of black people and people of color from the south into the north and so um, from the beginning sex education in America was never just about making sure people are healthy and happy and having a good right. time it was always about making sure some people, quote, do their duty to reproduce, uh, and that other people who were considered, quote, undesirable do not reproduce. And even into the present with social anxieties about so-called welfare queens, which is such a stigmatized and myth mythological term, um, ideas about welfare queens or ideas, fears about, like, um, quote, the browning of America and the decreased percentage of the white population in the U.S., these anxieties are still here. So my point is that 
from the beginning, sex education in America has been tied to ideas about um, what this society is, quote, supposed to look like uh, in ways that are actually really unjust. And I should mention that people might not always associate white supremacy with homophobia and sexism, but a really important component of white supremacy has always been the idea that white women must do their duty to reproduce and that all white people must do their duty to to reproduce and like not be gay. Right. So for example, in the early 1900s, it may seem hard now to understand why there was so much fear about women getting the right to vote, but that fear came from the idea that once women had more rights, that white upper-class women would leave the home and no longer raise their white children to continue the country. So that's my like very oversimplified version of how sex ed is related to white supremacy, but these ideas still shape notions of sexual morality and duty and gender normativity today. Excellent. Could you talk about the specific lack in the current programs in terms of LGBTQ youth and what the current stigma does to affect these youth? You're absolutely right that LGBTQ sexuality and gender are left out of most sex education, even the quote comprehensive sex education in the US. And that's a big problem because it sets up lots of kids for sexual health dangers. Um, and the reason for this erasure sometimes is very explicit that people are homophobic. Like if, if you're in a religiously motivated abstinence-only sex education program, of course they're, they're going to say that it's wrong for people to be gay. But I think in more, in contexts that are trying to be more progressive, sometimes there's a lack of knowledge and just a discomfort. There's a sense that somehow talking about two gay people having sex is more scandalous and inappropriate for children than, or even for teenagers or college students, than talking about straight sex because I think so much sex ed is taught through the, the lens of biology and the sort of justification for addressing this taboo topic is, well, we have to understand how bodies work and how babies are made. And so gay sex or queer gender don't fit into those narratives about why it's okay for a school to address these taboo topics. And so they're considered beyond the pale. Great. Um, so kind of working in uh, a different vein entirely. How would you say that consent is taught currently? And how would you say that um, maybe this works on a gendered line in the sense that there are women receiving different education than men and there are these programs that will split groups based on gender? Consent is a really important part of sex education that's rarely addressed, certainly not in a comprehensive or thoughtful way. So I'd say there are actually two, uh, quote, curricula about consent in the U.S. One is the semi-official version that kids sometimes get in sex ed, and one is the pop culture version through movies, peers, things our parents say, etc. So, like you mentioned, some sex ed programs do separate boys and girls, and sometimes will address the issue of rape and of consent, but often only with girls, and only from the perspective that it's supposedly a girl's job to prevent rape by dressing modestly or not leading men on uh, instead of talking to boys or actually talking to everybody and saying, be thoughtful about consent, don't touch anybody without their consent, really be sure you're communicating and here are strategies for communicating about consent. And that's something we do address in our comprehensive sex ed through the Women's Studies program. Um, and then unofficially, through movies, through our parents, through peers, there's 
this very common idea that it's a boy's job to pursue sex, that there's actually something wrong and weak about him if he doesn't, and also supposedly that women want men to pursue sex really aggressively. And there's this related myth that women will always say no, even if they want sex, because they don't want to come across as, quote, sluts or bad girls. Um, but so then that encourages boys to believe that they're actually doing the right thing and the desirable thing by pushing ahead, even if a woman says no. For example, uh, just a couple years ago, a Yale fraternity got in trouble when they were caught on tape having their pledges chant, no means yes, and yes means anal. So that's a perfect example of these really common social mythologies about consent and how they're conveyed to us through peer groups. And that's a huge part of rape culture. And rape culture is uh, the set of norms or beliefs about gender and sexuality that make sexual violence common and hard to punish and make it so make it seem so normal that lots of people can't even recognize it's a problem. So one way we remedy this or try to remedy it in our sex ed is we're very explicit about consent. So for example, something that often provokes a lot of shocked facial expressions from, from male students especially, is we say, if you are bigger than your partner, you have to remember that that might be scary. And this especially can come up if you're a man having sex with women. And so for guys in the room, if you have sex with women, I can almost guarantee that when you're at a party or on Tinder thinking, is she cute and is she into me? Probably she's thinking, is he cute? Is he into me? And am I scared he's going to hurt me? And once you realize that, you have to ask yourself, what can I do to communicate to my partner that they're really safe with me, that I'm not going to use this size difference against them, and that they can really feel comfortable to tell me if they need to slow down or stop. Because so many of us, uh, especially straight women and or queer men, mm -hmm. have been in situations where uh, we were afraid of what was happening during sex, or we just wanted to stop, or we didn't like it, but we didn't say anything because we... Um, either felt afraid of ruining the moment or afraid this person wouldn't like us or also sometimes felt scared this person wouldn't listen to us and would force us to continue anyway. So by explicitly addressing these issues in our education, um, sometimes it's the first time students have ever explicitly heard this said and it's very interesting. You'll often see these shocked facial expressions on the, the faces of straight boys like oh my gosh because of course boys are not raised to see sex as a danger to us or to consider that it might feel dangerous to women or, or to anyone else um, and conversely it's really interesting to see, to see the faces of students who are women who are almost all giving this nod of like I've been there I understand this uh, and I think actually those contradicting reactions for male and female students reflect really well the failures of our sex education system both in schools and through media or through peer education right absolutely um and in that same line, um, besides redefining consent and like making consent more clear to male and female students, um, what else do you think can be done to challenge rape culture? And what else do you think needs to be done going forward in terms of both your sexual education program and sexual education across the country? I think challenging rape culture is a huge endeavor. Mm -hmm. Like we've mentioned, one way to do that is give clearer education about what consent is and specific strategies for talking about it with your partners. I think another big component is deconstructing gender norms. People might not think of stereotypes about masculinity and femininity as central to questions of sexual health, but I actually think they are. For example, the idea that a real man has to be sexually aggressive and that a woman, you know, is supposed to be chaste, so she's always going to say no even if she wants it. These gender stereotypes feed the idea that 
it's normal or even desirable for a man to push for sex even after a woman says no. So I think changing these stereotypes from the beginning is really key. And that should happen much earlier than high school or college sex education. The example I always use with my students is uh, the song Kiss the Girl from The Little Mermaid. And this is a movie that a lot of us saw when we were probably four or younger. And in the song Kiss the Girl, Sebastian the Crab sings to the prince, um, you know you want her, there's one way to ask her, she's not going to say a word, you just got to kiss the girl. So like directly telling children, men have to want women, if you want a woman, you cannot ask her with words. The only thing you must do and that she really wants you to do is just to go for it. And what a terrible message. Mm -hmm. So uh, I hope that in the future, as more diversity and more thoughtfulness comes to children's media in terms of gender portrayals, uh, that complexity will also come to the romantic scripts in those movies mm -hmm. so that our children, if we choose to have children, because it's your choice, uh, yeah. can uh, grow up seeing cartoons that give much more thoughtful messages about consent. Awesome. Yeah. Great. Um, so how much of how much of this do you think is a generational divide? And what do you think can be done to potentially dissolve generational norms about both consent and sexual education, and do you think there is a need to reach out to older generations to try and combat these sort of mythologies? I think generational differences explain some uh, differences of opinion about consent or gender or sexuality, but not all of them. I mean, of course, there's the stereotype that older people are more conservative and that younger people are more open-minded, but working on a college campus, you can walk into any fraternity. I mean, just here a year or two ago, there was an issue where a bunch of fraternities hung big signs outside their windows on freshman move-in day saying very sexist and rapey things like, hey, dads, drop off your girls, we'll take good care of them, or, you know, we'll teach them right, that kind of thing. So... Um, actually, plenty of young people still hold these ideas. And in fact... I think for some young people, there's a specific backlash against the newer efforts for gender equality and for reducing sexual violence. So um, because our society does such a poor job overall of addressing these issues comprehensively from a young age, I think a lot of people, especially men but not only men, view these efforts for sexual safety and diversity and well-being as um, nasty, uptight, politically correct efforts that m supposedly mean feminists and gays are imposing on them to make their lives hard and difficult when they're just trying to have fun. Like, you know, I can just imagine some people's reactions to those banners that were hung outside fraternities, not only on this campus, but on many campuses, and probably lots of people's reactions were like, why are the feminists being so uptight and mean? And like, mm -hmm. we now, like, we're not going to let them stop us from having fun. Okay. Um, so I think we have to have a much more comprehensive conversation as a, as a society about how these violent ideas get passed off as fun. Like, what is going on from a really young age for all of us that we as a society could perceive comments about rape as, like, just harmless fun? Mm -hmm. uh, so I think, actually, for people of all ages, we still need much better uh, conversations about why these kinds of mythologies about gender and sexuality are harmful and why it's actually valuable and not just uptight or politically correct to change these things. In terms of outreach to older generations, yes, I believe that's important, uh, partially because 
uh, lots of older people are having sex post-divorce uh, and got married in a time before there was available information about about consent, about sexual pleasure, certainly about STIs and HIV and medications like PEP and PrEP, um, which PEP is the a, an emergency medication for HIV and PrEP is sort of like a birth control for HIV that you can take preventatively. So I do think that all everyone in our society, including adults, uh, especially divorced adults, but also married adults, because infidelity is also a thing that happens, really could use comprehensive, stigma-free education. I don't know a good solution for reaching older adults. Um, I think even though currently sex education for younger people is often done poorly, at least there are institutions in place, like schools and colleges and summer camps and church youth groups or synagogue youth groups um, that can deliver these types of programming. There, even though there are many social groups for older people, um, there aren't necessarily comprehensive institutions where many older adults come every day for class anyway that can deliver these types of lessons. So I think that's a really important issue and one that I don't uh, have much expertise on personally. Well, thank you for your opinion. Like, yeah very insightful um and we've kind of talked about the the way in which um younger generations are learning this um and i think uh something that we wanted to touch on is there uh is a conversation where some people think that younger generations learning this stuff is con controversial mm -hmm. and that sexual education shouldn't be taught this young um and how how does your book necessarily um, negotiate that terrain and when do you think these conversations about sexual education need to begin? Many people view sexual conversations as inappropriate and scandalous and x-rated to have with young people even teenagers but especially children so first I want to clarify that my children's book is actually not about sexual health it's about gender diversity and LGBT diversity so it's about understanding that gay and bisexual and transgender and queer and lesbian people exist and what types of discrimination they can face and how children can stand up against that type of discrimination but I think both that children's book and the sex education we're talking about share a similar challenge which is this myth that children live in a sacred bubble, totally walled off from any ideas about gender and sexuality, and that if we talk to them at all about gender and sexuality, that this will somehow corrupt them, lead them to be overly sexual, that it will put ideas in their head. Uh, and I think specifically when I'm talking about LGBT education, there's also this suspicion or stigma that somehow talking about this will lead to the molestation and abuse of children. And I think all those ideas are ridiculous myths that need to be thrown out the window, because children are flooded by our society with ideas about gender and sexuality from the earliest age and a great example is the little mermaid like we just talked about the song kiss the girl and these ideas about how boys and girls should act and dress and how they should sexually pursue each other like i'm always shocked when i rewatch the little mermaid and sebastian says to prince eric you know you want her which is a very sexual line but because these images and messages about gender and sexuality focus on the dominant group straight, white, usually Christian, able-bodied, middle to upper class, these messages are viewed as wholesome and appropriate for children and nobody thinks twice about them. Nobody sees The Little Mermaid as an X-rated scandalous movie that's harmful to kids or sexually corrupts them. And yet, if you substituted 
uh, two women or two men in that scene, I guarantee that parents would say, this is scandalous, you're sexualizing our children. So I think it's important to understand that education, whether about sexual health or about LGBT topics or both, does not, quote, sexualize children. It does not corrupt them or expose them to bad new ideas. It recognizes that they're already flooded with harmful, stigmatizing, inaccurate myths about gender and sexuality. Myths that will cause them uh, health problems later in life unless they're corrected. And certainly for people who are LGBT, will cause internalized shame later in life or right at the beginning of life. So whether through a children's book that explains LGBT topics or through accurate sexual health lessons, what you're actually doing is helping children to understand the realities of their world to understand themselves and to protect their own health and safety throughout their lives, which I think is very valuable. So to sum it up, I would say, actually, it's our dominant social narratives about gender and sexuality that are corrupting and harming children. And proactive LGBT and sex education is trying to repair that harm in the face of some really steep odds. Thank you. Um, so to wrap things up, um, we just had questions about how sex education can and maybe should provide a guide to deal with institutions that are um, kind of propagating these myths. Um, and how, how do you approach an institution that is maybe not recognizing the rights of certain people or not necessarily providing the support and maybe medical care that different groups need? navigating institutions like hospitals or schools is one of the really challenging parts of sexual health, especially for people who are women and or people of color and or queer and or immigrants. So something we really emphasize in our sex ed is how to do that navigation. So for example, a common problem in Columbus and in many cities is that medical providers don't know about PEP, which is the emergency medication for HIV. So frequently I've had students come to us and say that here in Columbus, when they went to hospitals after being sexually assaulted or after having a condom rip and asked for PEP, that nurses or doctors said, I don't know what that is. Or, or in one really uh, bizarre case, that a, a person who was a transgender woman of color was told by doctors you're not in the demographic that's at risk for HIV and therefore we're not going to prescribe you PEP, which is ridiculous because trans women of color face some of the highest rates of HIV because of the other forms of discrimination they face, like exclusion from work opportunities and healthcare and housing. So um, we tell students very directly when we're explaining how to get plan B, how to get PEP, these situations might come up. A pharmacist might say, I'm not going to give you plan B because it's against my religion. And then in many states, uh, the law says they have that right, but only if there's somebody else who can also give it to you in their place. So that, like we tell students, don't be shocked by this. Be ready so that if a, if a pharmacist says this to you, you can be like, no problem, please go get the other person who will give it to me. Uh, or if you're, if you're at a hospital and you say, I need PEP, and the doctor says, I don't know what that is, you can pull out your phone and say, uh, you know, Google HIV emergency medication. Um, and... Something we also address is uh, the, we also address racial inequality in healthcare, which may seem like a less obvious topic to some people, especially people who are white. Um, but 
a great example is the Gardasil vaccine for HPV. And as it's been explained to me by colleagues who are doctors, when that vaccine was developed, the idea was that the majority of the U.S. population is white and therefore it should be tested on the strains of HPV that most commonly cause cancer in white women. The problem was that once that vaccine came out, which I guess now is almost 10 years ago, um, it turned out that the strains of HPV that were most common in white women were not the most common in women of color, and therefore the effect, if not the intention, was unequal health outcomes for people of color and white people in terms of how well the vaccine protected them. And so we talk about that with students and say that you know now there's a new vaccine out that covers more strains of HPV. And we also talk about the history of forced sterilization in the U.S. Because often when we talk about reproductive choice, there's the assumption we're talking about the choice to not have children. Uh, but because of white supremacist ideology in the U.S. about who, quote, should be having children and who's supposedly undesirable, um, from the early 1900s up until the 1970s, and I believe still in some cases for women who are incarcerated, there was a common practice of sterilizing women against their consent, especially if they were women of color and or poor. So women might go to the hospital for having their appendix out and then 10 years later find out that also their fallopian tubes were tied while they were there without their consent. So we talk about this with, with students, not just to give them a history lesson, but to help them understand the kinds of institutional obstacles that people may face uh, when they're pursuing sexual health care, because so often the problem is not only the obstacle, but also how shocked people are by the obstacle, and it like throws them off entirely when they're already stressed about getting Plan B or you know getting an abortion or whatever else. So um, we really hope that by preparing students to understand institutional obstacles, we can help them to navigate those obstacles in order to be okay. Um. So while we have you here. Um... Could you tell us more about the book that you published recently? Yes, I recently published a children's book called UBU, Explaining Gender, Love, and Family. And I uh, created it with a very talented artist, Julie Ben Bassett. And it was published last July, and we've now been working with a team of translators. So it's now out in uh, nine other languages with more coming. But the ones that are out include Arabic, Chinese, Spanish, uh, and a whole bunch more. But the goal of the book is to help kids understand from about age six or seven onward uh, what are gender and sexuality, how is gender different from anatomical sex, what does it mean to be straight, gay, bi, queer, trans, intersex, etc., what kinds of discrimination do different groups face, how do these types of discrimination intersect, like if you're a uh, black lesbian woman, for example, and what can we all do to oppose this dis discrimination. And on one hand, this book might not seem directly related to sexual health. I guess the way I see it connected is that so many of our problems of sexual health in the U.S. are related to myths about gender. Like the idea that there are only two genders and they have to be attracted to each other and perform romantic scripts in a very specific way where the man pursues the woman and the woman says no, 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 but really wants yes or, or whatever. Um, and so even though the book itself does not address sexual scenarios at all, um, my hope is that it can give kids a foundation for understanding how gender and sexuality work in our society so that later when they are old enough to have conversations about consent and sexual health and how to use condoms or whatever else, that they already have a good foundation that goes beyond the myths of a sexual dichotomy 
Um, and even, for example, the book talks about breaking stereotypes and the idea that no matter what kind of body you have and no matter what gender you identify with, you can like any color you want. You can play with football and dolls and go swimming and wear blue and pink if you want. Uh, and I think that early concept about breaking gender norms or, you know, getting beyond gender norms can be a foundation later for conversations about uh, sexual consent, where you can say to a class, you know there's this idea out there that boys are supposed to push for it and girls are supposed to say no, but just like the idea of wearing blue or pink, those ideas are silly and you should always make sure that you and anyone you're having sex with are just doing what feels comfortable and right for you. All right. Thank you again. Um, and it was a pleasure having you here. Thank you for all of the information. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here and I'm excited to listen to the podcast. Okay.